Hey, Blenders, on this week's show, we break down the Oscar category controversy. Cyrano finally hits theaters, and director Joe Wright is our guest. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, Blenders, and welcome. Welcome to episode number 204 of Real Blend, a podcast that thinks we should start calling it the Academy of Snores. (laughs) (laughs) The Academy of Snores. Because they're they're boring, right? Oh, Oh, I get it. The Academy Academy of of Boars. Of of Boars? (laughs) That was much better than I thought it was going to be. Do that thing you do. <laughs> Come on, Don't. bail me out Don't. here. Uh, on this week's show, was, <laughs> the Oscar controversy was it bad, Kev? How was it? It was, it was, a, lot, it was a lot worse than I thought it was going to be, actually. <laughs> and that that shows like what we think of you, Sean, because it was yeah. infinitely better than I thought it was going to be. Oh, I was waiting for like gold. And to Cyrano. me, that was that, that was gold. Cyrano finally hits theaters, <laughs> and director Joe Wright. Who's going to be joining the show? Um, I'm Sean O'Connell, the managing editor here at Cinema Blended, joined as always on the Roblin podcast by Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. Hi, Jake. How are you? Hi, buddy. You're very handsome. Yeah, Why are you all you. dressed up? Do you have a do you have a, a basketball game to coach? Uh, no, because we got our asses whooped in that game. So, uh, but you're like wearing no, a suit. Every once in a while, I like to just not wear a t-shirt, and uh, it's it shows how. Uh, infrequently i do this because both of my boys looked at me like are you all right like what's the what, what's what's below the waist oh or pants. wait what's the wait hold on me phrase what's what's pants wow you're wearing the yeah, full the suit whole, yeah the whole thing yeah i try i try to mirror uh kevin that McCarthy seems so uncomfortable in, in washington dc uh hi kev how are you uh, did you notice that Sean went to Jake first after uh, Jake praised his joke and uh, and i was uh not so praiseworthy even though i was i mean to be look, fair who's the favorite child now to be fair it wasn't it wasn't his joke i have to take the blame <laughs> or the credit depending on who i'm talking to there I, also uh, is there is no rhyme or reason to who i choose i literally choose it in the moment and there's no, no i'm totally it. kidding but i also want to give you credit uh not only does he have the full suit he also went black socks too which is like you really committed to like the the whole like 
I'm in it. Well, I don't do it. Like I said, I don't do it. I don't do it often. Uh, So when I do it, I try to do it right. So (laughs) if you're watching us on YouTube and you can uh, comment on the suit that I'm wearing, uh, thank you for joining us. Please head down. (laughs) Give us a like and a subscribe. (laughs) I got got a weird joke that just popped up Uh, for our audio listeners. If you want to join us in video form, of course, head over to YouTube.com backslash Real Blend Podcast. Uh, of course, we are available all the different places where you get your podcast needs met. On Mondays, we drop an episode of Real Blend Premium. Uh, this week, it's going to be a mailbag. Always a lot of fun to do the mailbags. You guys send us uh, some messages, some questions. We answer them. You get ad-free versions of the full Real Blend main show, uh, and then a newsletter that I write every other week. So get to the check the description of this week's show for information on where to sign up. We have an interview this week. Joe Wright, the director of Atonement, has a new movie coming out sort of new uh called Cyrano it was in the Oscar race for a little while was it um and then they kept pushing it back yeah so now it's coming to theaters and we recorded this a while ago so I want to give you guys the disclaimer that we recorded this stuff with Joe Wright before we switched up our cameras and all of our audio and visual stuff so it might be a little bit jarring uh to hear that we are a little bit different perfectly listenable uh, according to Gabe standards so we just want to give you guys a warning um but in the meantime the content's still great the hosts are still the best in the business. Uh, and we have Joe Wright from Cyrano on the Real Blood Podcast. I had an interesting conversation with Denzel Washington for the Fences Junket, uh, where he was talking about the idea of bringing that show from the stage to the actual movie and the idea of what a camera can do when you have it in someone's face versus somebody sitting in the back of a theater and not knowing the emotion or being able to see it specifically. Um, I know this started off as a play, then it went to a musical, then obviously went to a movie. So I'm wondering for you in particular, camera choices and kind of what that did since you had your actors on stage, but also now in a film and kind of how that changed emotionally for you as as a storyteller. Yeah, I think... Um, I think people are often surprised when uh, they ask me what my favourite shot of a movie is, and I always um, I always respond by saying a close up. Um, there's something to me uh, beautiful and uh, and noble about seeing the human face um, projected on a twenty foot screen. It kind of immortalises the human face and. Um, and so certainly for me, I think one of our strongest tools as filmmakers is to is the close up and and wanting to get in there with the characters um, uh, and and really see deep into their eyes. Um, and then also the, the the rhythm created, you know, uh, when you're watching a, a play, um, you um, you're able to, you know, um, choose where you where you're looking. Uh, whereas with a with a film, um, that that choice uh, is really given to the the director, um, and and so we're able to um, create emotional rhythms uh, that uh, would not exist, um, visual rhythm, rhythms that would not exist in the theatre. Thank you. Uh- Joe, I've never acted in a film. I've never directed a film. Um, but I would assume that emotions like anger and fear are a little bit easier to um, both personify and capture on film. But your movie is fueled by love. It's fueled by this esoteric concept of love. And so I just wanted to get some uh, tricks for capturing things like love at first sight. Uh, you do something great with the audio where it drops out and you only hear the breathing of the characters. 
Um, but so many times through, you have to convince the audience that they're looking at that this this story that's powered by something that's that's hard to capture. I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think we all come uh, at life with a lot of defenses, um, and uh, and and one or two of the defense mechanisms we use are irony and cynicism. Um, and uh, and I wanted specifically with this movie uh, to make a film without either of those. Um, uh, and so it's really about dropping your defenses um, uh, to geek out. Um, uh, I've been working with the... Um, the same dialogue editor for my entire career, Becky Ponting. Um, and she and I have developed a technique of use, using breaths um, uh, to accentuate the connection or disconnection between characters. And we found that if you have two characters breathing and you can, and the audience can hear it, if you have two characters breathing in sync with each other, then that connects them. Um, if you have two characters breathing out of time with each other, then that disconnects them. Hmm. And so your um, reference to the breathing in the scenes is actually really, really important. And we spend many, 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 many hours working on the breaths and making those breaths as um, as revealing of the characters uh, as possible and um, and yeah so that's so 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 working on those breaths is certainly one um, little trick we, we we use. That's outstanding. Very effective. Yeah. Uh, Joe, you know, I think we should all be so lucky as to have uh, a Cyrano in our life, someone that kind of has our ear and can kind of, you know, point us in the right direction and maybe verbalize things for us that we're not capable of verbalizing. I was wondering, who was that for you as a director? Who was your cinematic Cyrano? Who was the person that maybe when you got into the business would kind of whisper some stuff in your ear, point you in the right direction and, and maybe sort of help you verbalize what you were having a tough time verbalizing? Um, there, is a, oh, 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 there is a wonderful um, actor uh, who now is a director called Kathy Burke. Um, she's a comedian as well. She won the Palm Door for Gary Oldman's Nil by Mouth. Uh, she, in fact, introduced me to Gary when I was, you know, still a teenager. I've known her since I was 14. And, um, and she uh, has been my mentor ever since. Um, and she's someone who I would go to for advice and for a kind of, clarity check really um you know she'd ask what my intentions were and and were they um fear-based or were they coming from the right creative place kathy burke if you don't know her work look it up she's she's um she's uh, an extraordinary um human and actor and artist you know, Joe, um, as from a filmmaking perspective, I've really admired your work for a long time. Um, the the work you do with your DP, I mean, I, I, you have a great relationship in terms of like what you do with your camera, your camera being a leading character. Um, I wanted to ask you, there's a wonder specifically in this film with Dinklage, uh, which is on the stairs, which is just absolutely incredible the way that fight kind of plays out. Um, I do want to talk to you about that. But first, I was wondering if you could go back to the atonement wonder on the beach. 
um, and kind of what lessons you learned from that one or particularly what struggles you had on that on, on achieving that one or particularly and kind of how that's helped you achieve different oneers since specifically the Dinklage one. But um, because we are a filmmaking show and I've never talked to you about the atonement before, I, that, that, that shot is one of the greatest shots of all time. Um, and I just wanted to get your pick your brain on that and what you kind of learned from that. Uh, thank you. Um, we were still shooting on film in those days. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and so we, we did, we did, uh, four takes. Uh, the first take was terrible. The second take was, uh, pretty bad. Um, <laughs> the third take looked like it was all right. Um, but the signal <laughs> dropped out between the camera and video. Um, so we had no way of watching it back, right? Thought, well, we better do another take because, um, uh, because we might not have got it. Uh, so then we did a fourth take and the, the Steadicam operator, um, collapsed. Uh, and so we didn't get a fourth take. Obviously with film, you have to wait for the film to be sent to the lab. Um, and then uh, the film comes back from the lab and we sat um, pensively in the screening room waiting for the shot to be projected and uh, oh, and God. the relief uh, was was extraordinary when we realized that we'd actually managed to get the shot. I think I think the, the shot itself is really a testament to the um to the guys in it you know uh, we had a thousand extras from a town up north called red car um and they are what make that shot you know i spent uh, a long time working with them and developing each little vignette and each character um and and they're what make that shot you know we were just there to capture it and so i guess what i've taken away from that um is that is that what's in front of the camera is is certainly what's most important um and a way of working with you know background uh, uh or extras or, or or supporting you know artists um uh is is vital and really and, and really rewarding yeah, and Joe, you did break up for just a second there. I wanted to, I wanted to confirm something. So you you did the take, you did it four times. It was the third take, the one that you lost VO on that you that was actually the one that worked. Yeah, that was luckily the one that worked, but we didn't know that until the following day. <laughs> That's <What>? terrifying. That <laughs> That's is terrifying. unbelievable. That gives me anxiety here listening to that. <laughs> it was a it was a low budget film, you know. So we put a lot of our resources into that one day, and we would not have been able to repeat it had uh, and I had no coverage, you know, I had nothing. And that was Dunkirk, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is crazy. Yeah, <laughs> um, Joe, I've been an enormous fan of yours um, for for years. I've been lucky enough to go to one of your sets. I went to Pan and watched you film that. Um, and Atonement. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but Atonement was my very first junket, uh, and br that oh, brought oh, me wow. over to brought me over to London. And we got to see it in a tiny screening room. And after it ended. Uh, you and Mr. McAvoy were waiting there uh, and we drank wine and you asked us what we thought of the film. And I thought, is this how it is? Like, is this what happens? We just come out of screenings and talk to the director and it's not like that at all. So that was a, that was a very uh -huh. special memory. But going as far back as Atonement and, of course, in, in Anna Karenina, which I'm an enormous, enormous fan of, 
You seem very interested as a storyteller in the physical toll that comes with uh, keeping a secret uh, from someone. Uh, And so I was just wondering how that interest in in that subject matter has evolved for you from film to film. And maybe what are some of the things that you've learned by digging into that uh, as a motivator? That's that's fascinating. I've honestly never thought of that before. I've never seen that through line. Um, uh, I mean, I think... I think I'm interested in less in secrets and more in truth. Um, I'm interested in film and its ability to express subjective truth, subjective reality. Um, uh, Obviously very different from objective reality Um, and our point of view, you know. Um, And so I guess that speaks to the na- to the nature of, of of secrets that secrets are kind of our biggest secrets is is how we how we experience the world around us and um uh and we try and express that through film and through through talking to each other as well and 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 how we what i'm interested in is how we connect you know and that's what i love about the story of 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 Cyrano is that it's really a story about um our need for human connection um and our often failure to achieve that you know and especially at this time and in, in, in you know we'd, we'd spent so many months in lockdown um uh without any human connection at all and so to make this film during the pandemic felt very important felt urgent um uh because we were making a film about people connecting um or as i say failing to connect i'm going to think about that i never made i never i'd never thought of it as being about a through line of secrets i've got to think about that i hope i wasn't wrong no i think i think that's interesting sorry anyway jake no. go ahead no uh, so I, I saw cyrano on stage whenever i was in high school i saw it again on stage when i was in college obviously i grew up with roxanne and then obviously with this film but despite seeing it the same story multiple times i never felt like i was watching the same story multiple times because it's been able to be interpreted so many different ways, which I find fascinating. Why do you think that this one particular story is able to be interpreted so many different ways in so many different genres and mediums? And is it is the sky the limit? Like, what are the other different ways that this story could be told? Um, I think it's I think I think often if one tries to achieve if one tries to achieve something universal, um, one fails. Uh, but if one tries to achieve something really specific, um, it becomes universal, right? Oh, interesting. Um, and I think what Ross Dand wrote was a very, very specific story about a very, very specific character and a very specific dilemma. And somehow that has meant that it has this kind of universality to it um, that has continued... Um, uh over the past you know couple of hundred years um i think it speaks to our desire to be seen um and our fear of intimacy um and so i feel like it's a it's a story that perhaps will continue to be played um in different forms 
um, uh, just like Shakespeare is, you know, I mean, I, I can think of like five productions of Shakespeare of uh, Macbeth on at the moment, you know. Uh, um, so it's it's kind of like that. It's part of the canon um, uh, that will that will find new iterations with each new generation, I hope. You know, Joe McGarvey is one of the greatest DPs working today. Um, he's an absolute well, genius. Said so. <laughs> uh, please, please tell him I said so. And obviously, uh, we we already refer- referenced the atonement shot, but you've worked with him on many films. Um, and I was wondering, was there a moment where it clicked for you that he was going to be your guy? Because like you see a lot of different filmmakers collaborate with the same artist over the years like quentin tarantino had the same editor for so long and then you know uh, scorsese you you know every you, you find someone that you can work with so was there a particular moment where you realized that he was going to be like like the dp that you wanted to work with and and then now as you go continue forward in your career um when you guys are on set how your language works uh how how that talking back and forth in terms of the shots you're setting up and what you want is he i would imagine it's 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 an interesting thing to have somebody as a through line like that yeah i guess um when i give him a call you know to to say right Seamus we've got a new movie he always says oh we're getting the band back together <laughs> um and it it's kind of like a band, you know. Um, uh, I'm not sure, you know, which instrument I'm playing, but um, but it is kind of it is kind of like a band, and um, and so Seamus and Sarah Greenwood, uh, the designer, and Jacqueline Duran, the costume designer, um, we get back together and we tell another story, uh, or we go on the road again. Um, there's a shorthand that we have, um, uh, and. And I trust Seamus and I know uh, the tone of his voice when I've come up with a dreadful idea. Uh, his voice will kind of go up a couple of octaves and he'll go, well, that's, um, yeah, we could do that. Um, I know that that means it's a really bad idea and that we're not going to do that. Um, and I know when I come up with an idea that is good, um, I know the tone of voice he gives me then, you know, um, um, we're very kind of action orientated, by which I mean, we, 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 you know, we theorize to some extent, but really it's about the practice that, um, uh, that is important. Um, and I just love him as a human being, you know, he's a kind, compassionate, witty, intelligent man with a wonderful use of language and all of that somehow you know transfers through the camera and onto the screen in the form of light it's it's kind of magical yeah that's awesome. um joe there's a line from cyrano uh, early on in the film that that struck me so much i had to write it down and it says what lasts is compromise and sacrifice uh, I'm curious if that's a mantra for filmmaking. Uh, should fledgling directors maybe get that tattooed on their arm so they, uh, as a reminder of what to expect? No, I wouldn't give that advice to anyone, really. Hmm. I think there's a, I, I think, I think, I think a kind of um, be bold and reckless is what I'd, I'd suggest to, to hmm. students of film, you know, um, uh, and uh, you know, if you need to forge permission um uh uh yeah 
Joe, you don't only have a great history of, of adapting novels, you have a great history of a taking big swings and going after the big novels, whether it's, you know, whether, you know, it's, it's this iconic play or, or, or Anna Karenina, Pride and Prejudice, even Peter Pan. Um, so with knowing that you can tackle the big ones, the ones that, that we all grew up reading, that, that we've seen different adaptations for, are there any works out there that, that scare you? Are there anyone that you look at and go, God, it'd be, it'd be great to, to adapt that one, but I don't, I don't, I don't know if I can tackle it. Moby Dick. Um, uh, that would, uh, be uh, a bit of a, a bit of a reach, I think. Um, I now really uh, want to see know. the Joe Wright version of Moby Dick. I'm going to be honest with <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah. A lot of people uh, said a lot of people said Dune couldn't couldn't be made into a movie, and now yeah. we're getting a second yeah, one. To see absolutely. What happens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I think for me, um, the reason why I love doing these kind of literary adaptations is because I get to learn um, about literature. You know, I. I um, I went to uh, a pretty terrible school in, in London. Um, I, I didn't get much of an education. On top of that, I'm dyslexic. Um, so um, for me, each film uh, is not about what I know, but about what I want to know. Um, it's about, um, uh, I want to know about Tolstoy and Anna Karenina. I'm going to make a film about that. And through that, I can learn um uh and the same the same with this it's about it's about you know learning really mm-hmm. joe i was watching a documentary the other day uh called being james bond it was uh it was about the craig era of bond and i saw this incredible shot behind the scenes of sam mendez directing the scene where judy dench's character is dying as m in skyfall um and as he's behind the camera like you see him like essentially lose himself as a director and become an, an audience member. And he's just crying behind the camera. He's so immersed in the moment. And I just wonder, like, and I would imagine that's happened to you as, as a filmmaker because you're, you're directing and you, and you kind of have the, your, the helm of everything. But I was wondering if you have any moments like that in, in your films, or maybe you were behind the camera watching Oldman going, damn, that is Churchill or like, you know, like, like, or was there, do you find yourself going that far, like immersing yourself and almost forgetting your directing? Now, I'm not saying Mendez was forgetting that, but he obviously let it affect him in a way where he was crying during it. Yeah, um, kind of always, actually, is the answer to that. Um, uh, it's, you know, I, I I get the best seat in the house. You know, I get yeah. to sit in the camera. <laughs> Um, I have a little box. I sit next to the camera lens and I'm there watching the actors and, and they're doing something extraordinary, you know? Um, and, um, and, and often I am, uh, I forget that I'm directing and that I am just there with them and I'm so emotionally engaged in what they're doing. Um, there have been times where, um, and on Cyrano where I had to, you know, cover my face um because i might i was making too much noise um uh and um and it's just it's a great privilege you know to get to express cinematically your feelings about the world and about love and and do it without cynicism and without irony uh that's what i tried to do with this movie you know um and just and just uh express express how you feel you know mm. it's good 
noise from laughing? Were there moments where it was ca- the catching noise up? Noise from on? laughing and crying and and crying. Yeah, <laughs> it is a very I mean, emotional. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very easy to tears. I must say, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give a note, you know, and I'm just talking to the actor and saying, I just want to, it's just, can you just, it's just, so, you know, and it's like, um, uh, that's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> that was me and your Anna Karenina when, when uh, Jude rips the note up and throws it up in the air. And I remember when it, when yeah. it went up in the air, I said, if this comes down as, as snowflakes, uh, I'm going to give this a perfect grade. And it came down as snowflakes and the <laughs> tears came and I gave it a perfect grade. Oh, it was <laughs> it's absolutely oh. brilliant. Thank um, you. Joe, I'd love for you to talk about, because uh, I deeply admire your editing techniques and quite often they sync up with music. Uh, and it has to be the case with Cyrano as well, too. You have these fantastic songs that have um, a, a Springsteen-level storytelling to them. Uh, and in, in one particular song um, where the soldiers are singing about telling, tell them, tell them, and, and the camera's pulling back through. Uh, can you just talk a bit about editing uh, and choreographing your camera movements to go to the music that already existed and you know that fans of the show are going to want to see? Um, yeah, I mean, I... Uh... I'm a very strong believer in preparation and I storyboard a lot of the films and I shot list all of them. Um, so I try to, to have a kind of very clear idea of what I'm doing when I walk on set. That's not to say that it can't change um, and adapt to, to what the actors bring on the day. Um, but that is true even more so uh, with uh, the musical numbers in the film, uh, because you're working to such a strict, you know, uh, timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so everything has to fit within the music uh, as it's written. Um, so therefore you need to know exactly where your shots are and where your cuts are and how you're gonna be playing it. Otherwise the whole thing will kind of uh, fall apart really. Um, so uh, it was it was very carefully planned out and designed, um, uh, and that I really enjoyed. But I also wanted to make sure that it didn't become like a music video, you know. Sure. Um, uh, my editor Valerio Benelli and I we've worked together for a while now, and um, and he is both technically masterful and emotionally very available. Um, and so he did a lot of kind of pulling and stretching of moments. So there's some stuff where, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the shot is very infinitesimally sped up just so that it works with the next kind of beat of the music Mm. or whatever. Mm. Uh, There's a lot of trickery going on there. Um, uh, and then, you know, obviously in pre-production, I'd worked through the songs with Seamus uh, McGarvey, my DP, mm. and, uh, and, and we had kind of very carefully planned them and then we got to rehearse them as well. So there's a whole, there's a whole process that we, that we go, that we go through. Mm. Thank you. It's fun. I like doing musicals, you know. Well, we'd love to see you do more of them. Um, Joe, we are running out of time, so I'm going to take us out on this. Um, You are a director who has delivered films that have yielded actors Oscar nominations and in some case Oscar wins, uh, you know, whether it's Gary Oldman or Keira Knightley or Saoirse Ronan, I believe, Vanessa Redgrave. I'm sort of curious. A lot of people refer to you as an actor's director. So I'm curious from your perspective, what are what are you giving your actors 
that not that other directors haven't figured out, but other directors maybe don't have the batting average that you do in that statistic. So what is it that you feel like you're giving them that maybe other directors aren't? Um, I'd love to be thought of as an actor's director. I can think of no higher praise. Um, I don't know. I just talk to them. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people are, are scared of actors. You know, they, they kind of, um, they they think of them as being like weird sort of uh, magicians or something. Um, <laughs> uh, and also, you know, they, the, the, the notion of an actor comes with a lot of baggage, especially in this whole kind of celebrity culture um, uh, that we're living through now. Um, so it's important for me that I talk to them as human beings. I'm not trying to kind of um, uh, handle them. Do you know what I mean? I'm, uh, we're collaborators um, and uh, the acting department is just another department. Um, uh, it's important that the lead actor feels like they're the head of department and that they support the other members of their department. Um, and we talk about the craft. You know, um, I understand that acting is um, 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. Um, uh, so we talk about the craft, the hard work of it, the graft of it. Um, uh, and then that allows them a, a, a trust and a space um, to 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 be inspired. Um, and then I have to be ready to catch that. It's a little bit remarkable that we made it this far in the interview without celebrating your cast, uh, of which the ensemble is spectacular. Uh, we can't wait for people to go see Cyrano and see how great they are in it and how great your work is. Joe, we know this is the end of your press day. Can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Um, hope you enjoyed the conversation. We were really honored to have you. Yeah, I did. Thank you, gentlemen. That's been fun. Thank you. No problem. Take care. Have a great day. Thank you very much to Joe Wright for coming on a real blend to join the show. We were talking about the fact that, you know, it's weird to do. And we haven't done an interview. I don't think for the show like this, where we conducted it a long time ago and then we're asked to to sit on it. And this one in particular, because it was like sort of a limited release. Yeah. And yeah. Then they kept moving it back and moving it back. And they just wanted the the content of the interview to sort of time up. With the release, it was kind of Krasinski you know, was the last time to it. Happened, it. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah, Krasinski was actually was that over a year? That was over like a, a year that we had to sit yeah. on John Krasinski. But this was, was what we recorded. I mean, even even when things were normal, if I remember right, Gabe, correct me if I'm wrong. We recorded Joe Wright in October of 2021 with the idea that we were going to have to sit on it for until a couple of weeks, December until, until December. Like December. Yeah, and, and what you're kept, saying is right. It's right. it's Joe. Right. Uh, quiet okay. place down. OK, you too. <laughs> <laughs> but, we, but we're glad we were able to get him on the show because it was a really interesting conversation. And Kevin, I love that conversation, the question you had about the unbroken shot for Atonement. And oh. it feels like feels like he could talk about that, you know, endlessly because yeah. he knows those complications. And, and he only had, you know, certain chances to get yeah. it. That was also that was Dunkirk. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it was. Which yeah. which is really fascinating. He because did Dunkirk I, before. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it, I guess in a weird way, he's done two Dunkirk movies, right? Because he did Darkest Hour as well. That's yeah. True. Well, and what's what's he's, oh, been, what's he's done double the Dunkirk that Nolan has. What's interesting to me, though, is that like uh, when I watched Atonement, like this is another reason why I love Christopher Nolan. Like, like in terms of Dunkirk, I didn't know that story 
as I didn't, I mean, I knew about the historical significance of it, but I didn't know the full detail of the story. Like I learned a lot of history watching that movie. Um, not that I hadn't heard about it, but when I watched Atonement, I didn't even connect the dots that it was Dunkirk. Um, because not, not that I wasn't paying attention to it, but it just wasn't something that resonated. I was more, uh, more invested in the scene, the emotions of it, the, the, the unbroken shot. Um, but it's crazy now. I, I haven't seen that shot since I've seen Nolan's movie. I'm very curious to kind of watch that scene again or that movie again just to get the perspective of like what like is Dunkirk a prominent aspect of that scene do they mention it is it like is it I don't remember the exact dialogue I don't in remember it all specifically yeah. um but, I just remember the but, shot blowing me away when I was when I saw it in theaters but I never connected the dots that it was Dunkirk until later um after seeing Nolan's movie I was like oh wait this has been in you know they've used Dunkirk in other films obviously over history because it's a major historical event but just interesting. I'm waiting for Atonement to show up on uh, TBS or TNT. So <laughs> I, can, I can try and catch up with it again because it's been a while since I've seen it. So sci-fi, uh, it's going to be on sci-fi any day now. Sci-fi. Or at least the History Channel, right? Yeah. Kind of makes sense. That it should show well, up. Well, no, on there's that. not. There's not enough aliens for it to be in the History Channel. Let's get to the topic of the week that is uh, the most interesting to us, which is the uh, <sighs> the Academy's decision to pre-record. Uh, eight categories and eight different winners from the from the Oscar ceremony and then to include them in the main show as part of a sort of edited package, you know, to in an effort to, <clears throat> I would assume, reduce the running time of the main show. So, you know, I've seen some people have misconceptions about how this is being put out, saying that they're removing these categories completely. They're not doing that. They're going to they're going to uh, give them out an hour before the telecast starts and then recognize those people um, during the show not enough in my opinion obviously and and you're removing some some of major categories uh they are film editing <laughs> film editing alone like if you just said film editing this would be the, the category idea. that is often referred to as the precursor for best picture correct i think there's an entire one third of the process yeah like yeah. like I, there's there's like the ancillary, ancillary things not to reduce their importance but like we talk about makeup and even score and all these all these things are like pieces of a production but the three tent poles are pre-production, which is largely a writing right. process, production, which is largely shooting it. And there's a ton of things that are involved outside of that. And then editing it. <laughs> it's 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 a major even, part of filmmaking. Even live shows are edited. Yeah. There's a person literally in a booth editing. Take what camera you're one, watching. camera two, right. camera three, take right. camera four. Editing happens live, yeah. too. So yeah. it's it, like uh, my argument is that and Sean will read the rest of these categories. Every single one of these is being taken out you would not be able to broadcast the Academy Awards yeah. without these people. Yeah, well, that's what, that's what someone the said. Like, do they these should jobs. Do, yeah, do the Oscars within one shot, without sound, without music, okay. and the presenters aren't allowed to wear makeup. But again, they're not removing the category completely. They they're are. just not giving it, they're not giving it the attention that we might argue that it deserves. I don't buy into that. They're, it's they're, not they're not giving it. out, it's not like they're giving it, they're not giving out an editing Oscar. They're still going to yeah, give out an editing but, Oscar. Okay, imagine you, imagine it's your time. Sure. To win. Imagine like you're the front runner. You're going to win best score this year. You're Hans Zimmer. Johnny and then Greenwood. you find out. No, Hans Zimmer is going to win. And uh, you find out like, hey, your category has been deemed. I'm going to be honest with you. The Critics Choice Awards does something similar. And that pisses me off, too. We give out commercials during the bathroom breaks. Let me read out the rest of the categories. Yes. All right. Settle down. It's a uh, film editing, original score, documentary, short subject, makeup and hairstyling. Production design, production, 
That's a major yeah. category. Uh, short film animated, short film live action, and sound is the final one. And sound, so, didn't they already combine sound and sound effects like a couple of years ago? It was, it was sound but, mixing and sound editing. They combined. Right. Okay, gotcha. Also, what's fascinating to me is, so so somebody thinks that we should watch the screenplays get uh, win their award, but we can't watch the editor win or the composer win. So how did you decide that? that someone winning an adapted or, or, or an original screenplay award is that much more important or more interesting for your ratings yeah. than editing or score. So like like when, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson gets up there to possibly win his screenplay award for Licorice Pizza, is that going to give you more of a ratings boost than Hans Zimmer winning for Dune for original score? I would argue more people know who Hans Zimmer is. But not just Paul that, Thomas like Anderson. what I'm concerned about is like what insufferable comedic bits are we going to get mm. from three actors who I generally like. I like Amy Schumer and Wanda Sykes and uh, Regina Hall, but like what bits are we going to get that are you, that you are now deeming more important than honoring the person who scored a film or the person well, who edited a film? Like what, like also, what, what I, I couldn't tell you any of the, the, the bits that have, that have come out of the Oscars over the last 10 years, but there are incredible moments that have come out of editing and come out of score and come. I mean, like, you know, like, like Gabe said, whenever we started this conversation on the text thread last night, like basically would we have said F you to John Williams over the last if, 30 years? If John Williams were in this category, let's say, would they have cut score? Yes. Because he's getting up I mean, in age could yeah. be the last one, you know? I mean, I know Zimmer's a huge name, obviously, but like the one of the ones that I put on parallel with editing and score and and production design would be cinematography. How come cinematography made the cut? Like, I would right. love to know the conversations behind the scenes yeah. of how Didn't they decided they, which ones go. Wasn't cinematography up to be cut like a couple years ago? Well, yeah, keep in mind, they, tr they tried like to do something similar in 2018 and there was such an uproar similar to what there is right now. And I'm hoping that that there's ends up being a similar result where they come back and say, OK, yeah, we're sorry. We made a mistake. We're, we'll and put him back in. It literally makes no sense. I mean, because like, again, cinematography and screenplay are great examples of other awards like cinematographer. Uh, so theoretically, uh, uh, that goes to Power of the Dog or that goes to Dune or whatever, wherever it goes. You're telling me that the person who gets up to win the cinematography award is going to boost your ratings. But Zimmer wouldn't if he won for score like like it, it is. It's cherry picked. It makes no sense. But, but also, at the, at, the, at, the, at the end of the day, this is the most important thing here. This is the most important thing about this situation. No one's watching award shows anymore. OK, right. so like the Emmys, the Grammys, the Oscars, they're all massively down, plummeted, worst ratings of all time. These shows are designed now to just honor the art form, right? So at the end of the day, the Oscars, I understand you're going for ratings. I understand that. But like at the end of the day, people have way too many other things to watch. Now there's too many streaming services, etc. People are not tuning in. They're waiting for the next day to see what one and then that, then they move on with their lives. But in this particular situation, you know, we're talking about a show that specifically honors the art form and you're going to give people the cinematographer award. You're going to give the you're going to give the uh, the you know, the the screenplay awards out, but you're not going to give the rest of these awards out. There's some weird reasoning happening here that well, makes no sense. Because yeah, I, at the end of the day, what, what do they think is going to happen? Like, do they do they think that there are millions of people or at home that are that weren't going to watch and are going to hear this news and go, well, since they're not giving out sound and score, 
I'll tune in. Like, oh, okay, yeah. I'm sorry. I don't know if you know this, but PJ and all of his teenager friends are now making plans to yeah, watch. Right. That's, that's what was keeping them yeah. away. My yeah, brother yeah, yeah. never watches the Oscars, but now he is. Now he's yeah. gonna he can't watch wait. it. He can't well, wait. Yes, I, yes, you guys are you guys are 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 being um cynical for comedy sake. No, we're not. No, 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 no. I, I, gen- I generally think that they think that their ratings are going to just skyrocket because of this. They're not. Uh, OK, well, then let me finish my point. I don't necessarily think they're saying like original score is holding us back. I think that they approach this with we need to make this shorter. And they just started chopping things like they just started Why picking those category. eight. Well, I, d- I don't know. But my, my point is, I'm saying they didn't go original scores boring. Let's not have it. I think that they said we need to we're going to use this strategy of pre-recording them, cutting them down, which other shows have done in order to to lower the runtime of the show. I don't necessarily think that they're picking it saying like, no editing is going to make people tune in. Yeah. Let me play devil's advocate from this perspective. Um, Every year we watch the show and we all say, all of us say it's too long. It is. And so if you have to shorten it, how, how are you going to shorten it? Very easy. Okay. Very easy. You make a two hour show. Okay. And then the show itself is literally about, honoring the arts so you get rid of like these wacky bits you can have a big opener if you want billy crystal style totally cool with that and then like maybe a couple bits interspersed throughout but nobody is watching these award shows anymore for bits they're watching them if you're a movie fan to watch your artist get honored so instead of making a three and a half hour show you make it a two hour show and you do all the categories and then you intersperse a couple bits in between. You get your runtime and that's it. The reason they go three hours is because of ads. You know, they're trying to make more money. Sure. You, you make more money if you're an extra hour. Of course you do. I mean, you sell sure. a spot in if you're in that last hour block and everyone's waiting for best picture and best actor and best actress and you build those ads out. It's all money, man. And well, then, so and, let me also let thing. me throw this in as well, too, because I guarantee that they can track on a metric um, when the audience is tuned in and tuned out hundred percent. Right. So I bet they went over p- their past telecasts to see during which categories, you know, were the people tuning out. Uh, yeah. And like you said, okay. so if you have a three hour telecast and you put your best ad space in the last hour, cause that's when everybody's going to tune in for the big awards. Right. I see what you're saying. Kev, you make it two hours, but then every ad in the middle is like not Super Bowl level, you know, but, but, but you, more but it's okay, okay are, is NBC do gonna do that early. like the winter olympics just had the lowest ratings in the history of the winter olympics i guarantee mm-hmm. you nbc isn't going to go through and go fuck bobsledding no one watched that let's get rid of that where they're not going to start cherry picking the sports because right. they've know, had, so it's it's not what? a one-to-one because of, because of where they were the time that everything was was being broadcast a lot of the sports didn't but have the pr- all of athletes. these major events are just because yes. they just yes. no one's but watching animals, but they're different live animals, TV though. anymore. I mean, Correct. at the end of the day, I'll just look at me for one second. Look, look, look at me for one second. Okay, for example, um, right now I'm in the middle of binging Pam and Tommy. That show's been out for six weeks. I just started it two days ago. Like no, my, my point is, is like I'm not sitting down every day at the same no. time to watch anything anymore. Um, like when Euphoria comes out or whatever, I watch it the next day. Um, live TV is just not what it is anymore we are we are we have too much access so i want to really and i want to comment on that while you're mentioning the live tv point i think i think we're we're talking about like how do we fit this into a broadcast model and i think maybe the the change that needs to happen is that this isn't necessarily a broadcast tv show like this isn't necessarily a primetime network tv type of cell not anymore 
Not anymore, and but I think it could be big in a different space. I think they're depending on depending on how, where your audience is willing to move. But if you look at large events with live streaming, like you look at people who stream, like the Game Awards, for instance, that streams mm-hmm. on Twitch and YouTube, and they they huge stream numbers. Online, I think that's the sort of system, and I don't necessarily know exactly what that means for them. Maybe there's a way that they can do, hey, we're going to do the full broadcast, we're going to stream it, but for this this very valuable network prime time we're going to have a cut down version of it that airs there for you know someone who's just flipping through the channels on their yeah i know what you're saying because in a way it's not like sports it doesn't have to be live right like yes why and no doing it it yeah, but, you, but you run you run the risk of like i don't want to watch the oscars after i've already read on twitter who won best actor yeah. that's, yeah, this, wanna, that's like, the problem you'd have to solve but it could be that the last hour and a half is packed with everything everyone wants to see and for the mm. two and a half, three hours before that, you can watch a live stream that has <laughs> everything in the same production that you can sit there this and watch. Is what yeah, but is, 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 is it like doing. a half, is it a half still, empty auditorium? No. Like there are going to be people like still well, no. streaming in from the red carpet you, on the outside? No, no, no. You're, you're missing my point. I'm not saying do it differently. I'm saying instead of taking four hours of primetime TV and devaluing it with a four hour chunk of stuff that people don't want to watch you live stream so on twitch on youtube wherever just or on their own website they're a giant network it'd be on their own website you can tune in you can cast it to your tv you can sit there and watch it it is the oscars it is the show that we want it to be everyone gets to go on stage in front of everyone and have their moment no matter what their category is interesting but then at the two and a half hours in it becomes it it also starts broadcasting live on tv and all of those categories are the ones that they really want to show because it's going to have all the major actors and it. it's going to have this, that, and the other. Dude, I've seen I ABC's primetime lineup. It ain't that valuable. Yeah. Like, what are, what what are, are we, we're missing a new episode of American Idol so that, so that we don't get Hans My point is, though, my, it's, again, not, my, it's not that good a real estate. It's one pitch, but my point is they're trying to cut it down, and the people who actually watch it are upset about them cutting it down. I'm saying I think yeah, that And the needs- people that, 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 that they want to watch it aren't going to. Right, my, that's the okay. whole point. They're okay. cutting stuff for people who aren't going to tune in anyways. But I think that's that I think that my part. point is it needs a I think it's it's not a it's not a matter of what is the content on TV. It's are they putting so, it so in, if on they, the if right they, place? If, if, the, if next month they end up doing this truncated version of the Oscars uh-huh. and it ends up being the exact same ratings as it was last year, just astronomically low. Is that still a victory for them considering it's low but less time it was low? It's going to be I lower. I don't well, know how people justify that. Yeah. The only thing that I feel like. And then again, I don't like that they did this, but I do I do think it was smart from a marketing perspective because I am when they announced this the other day, the the Oscar fan favorite hashtag. And obviously, if you guys have seen it and been following it, like all these fans have just been like bombarding the votes. So like Cinderella Cinderella's was at winning. one point number one. And then there was, uh, you know, obviously Snyder cut. So or um, Army of the Army Dead. Of the Dead. So what what's fascinating about it is, is that like that is a good tool in terms of like getting people to tune in to see if there if there's makes it. But at the end of the day, you're just dealing with the Internet where people can like bombard reviews and like drop percentages and or build algorithms that make like a thousand votes for one vote. You know, what I mean, it's it's so ridiculous. Um, So like it, it means nothing. But I get the marketing aspect of it was smart in terms of like wanting to do that and bring more people to the show. But then nominate no way home <laughs> you know i mean like, it, doesn't yeah, make, it, right. it doesn't make any well, sense like the, why, the problem yeah. is the problem is the the body of people the small much smaller body of people who are making the broadcast decisions are not the same large uncontrollable amount of people who are voting like 
I'm sure the people who are producing the show were like, oh, wouldn't it be great if Zendaya and Tom Holland showed up or Zendaya and Tom Holland showed up and they got to be the stars of this show because they were in every category like they would love that if that was what they were given when they said, here, you're in charge of producing the broadcast. But they're not like it's it's easy for us to say nominate them if you want more views. But like that, that technically, that's I would love to hear from the nominees in the production design and makeup and hairstyling categories the, because um, there there was a write up on Variety, I believe, spoke with someone um, anonymously and they described the Zoom call. They invited them all into a Zoom call and they oh. thought they thought it was going to be about um, covid policies on the day. And yeah. um, not because I, I don't think they had like misled them. I think someone had mentioned like, oh, I think it's going to be this because I was in a meeting earlier about that. Yeah. yeah and yeah. it was about, hey, we're not going to actually live broadcast your categories. And it was about their reaction. And I believe the word they used to describe it was aghast. Oh, um, interesting. <laughs> but yeah, just because I would have been interested to see if like someone from production design was was like, I don't necessarily care. I'm still getting my Oscar. I'm still an Oscar winner. Necess- like, I just don't get a chance to nah. thank my yeah. mom. So that's my other point. Before we move on, my final point is I want to see what it looks like. How are they, how are these ca- like they're saying they're pre-recording them? Are they are they going up and talking to a bunch of empty tables or are they pre-recording them while, you know, everyone's going to be there? Because I think a part of the magic that you dream about when you're a kid is that, oh, you're standing on in the your imagination or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rewards are awards are meaningless. But when you're dreaming about doing this as a kid and the, the dream that's coming true is that is that moment on the stage. And are you giving your speech to, you know, people who are setting up silverware and things like or yes, are, or because is everyone else is on the Joe? carpet? That's my point. Like, I, I'm if that's the case, then, yeah, it's like, well, you're just kind of diminishing something but well listen we're not going to solve it today and the academy isn't going to solve it before this year's ceremony so we will continue to talk about it because there is as of this recording there is still such an an uproar in fact there's a trending uh there's a a hashtag on twitter right now that just hashtag present all 23 um Hmm. do you guys think is it hashtag kind of uh do you guys think that they the academy reverses their decision once again or do you think they go look we already did that once we got to double down on this no, I don't, I don't think, think so. They do. No, I think if they think do, bef- they look even more foolish. To be honest, before with you. correct me if I'm wrong, Jake. Before they were just going to cut the categories. They weren't actually going to cut them into the show, right? Wasn't that the issue in 2018? They were just going to not. Yeah, they were just going right. to like give them to them and not. I, so 20, I think 2018 they, is another life ago. True. I think that's the difference here that they can justify the backlash with of like, ah, oh, they're still going to see them. There was a while, not not that long ago, when we were having conversations about like just how long it took the people to get. If you were in the back of the room, right? Like, oh, we're, we're wasting a lot of time as we watch these people walk to the front yeah. of the stage. But don't forget, there, and, were, there were some years where they <laughs> they honored, like they gave the Oscar. They put this the microphone like in the audience. Oh, yeah. They that? tried that for a little while. Too. Yeah. And that and that, <laughs> yes. and that takes people off. God, so the solution was, so screw you. We just won't give you one. Well, yeah, because people care about this. It's fascinating. And here's why I don't think they're going to reverse it, because as Kevin has said, no one cares about the show. No one cares. Well, like, care. there's a trending no one... event happening on social media, like in the in the larger sphere. We do. I'm saying we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Outside Seth of our Rogan industry, said it, that that pretty pretty uh, little more. Um, Again, what did he like, say? Can you not well, he say? Said, no, no. He said no one. Didn't he say essentially no one cares about the Oscars? Yeah. Like a, that's what yeah. Rogan was saying. Yeah, in I mean, a like, general I mean, audience sense, we do. Yeah, which is yeah. why, in my to my point, you should stream it online so that anyone who wants to see it can see it, and you'll make your ad money and. Well, and, and if I'm being honest, if I didn't have to watch it this year because of work, I don't necessarily I, I, I'm of that mindset of, of award shows now, kind of like we started out as awards blend. Well, we now did. we've blended it. <laughs> and we, evolved. we evolved. 
Hmm. I don't know. We'll see how it all shakes out. But in the meantime, we're going to take a break uh, because we're going to sell some ads and pay for the show. Talk to you guys on the other side. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's kind of interesting that we are transitioning from the Academy being a little bit out of touch in terms of the movies that people watch uh, to a segment on the Critics' Choice Super Awards nominations, which got announced this week as well, too. And full disclosure, all three of us are members of the Critics' Choice and even more fuller disclosure. Uh, I am the Critics' Choice board member who is in charge of the Super Awards because yeah, Cinema you is are. one of those sites that powers a lot of the genre stuff that was recognized. So we want to get into the award nominations and the different categories that were um, that were announced because we're only in our second year of the Critics' Choice Super Awards. And so across the industry, uh, by and large, the first year, we were met with a lot of what is this? Like, wh what do you what is, what is this? What are you doing? What's the point? Um, and the point a little bit is that these categories and, and Kevin makes this point a lot when it comes to awards. These are categories that recognize the movies and television shows in this instance that more people are paying attention to. Kevin lobbies for comedies all the time. Um, this one, this the Super Awards recognizes uh, comic book, horror, sci-fi and action adventure. And so you end up with a lot of uh, titles that are the stuff that people are flocking to. Like we have No Way Home and we have Shang-Chi and Eternals and Jungle Cruise, like The Rock gets nominated for Jungle Cruise. Suicide Squad gets nominated in superhero category and John Cena gets recognized. Margot Robbie gets something for Suicide Squad. Uh, in horror, you have titles like Quiet Place 2 and Malignant and Candyman. Like they're movies that people are coming out to go see. And I think year over year, as we continue to push with the idea of the Super Awards is and how people can uh, compete for them, they're going to become the more populist sort of award show because people want to see the like if we can ever get to a point where the stars are showing up to this, it'd be amazing to get one or two people like Gabe mentioned Tom Holland and Zendaya. They're both nominated for their work in No Way Home. And if they were to show up to accept, I think it would probably get a better rating than whatever the Academy's going to end up with. So, uh, Jakey, you saw the nominations. What are your thoughts on the Super Awards in general? I mean, it, I think they're the, probably the most sort of uh, like relatable nominations that I've seen. Um, 
And it also it's a reminder that these things aren't just popcorn entertainment that we walk into and watch and then forget about when we walk out. Like there are individual crafts that are incredible just as much as they are in Power of the Dog or Belfast or West Side Story or whatever the case may be. Like Tom Holland did give a great performance in No Way Home and Zendaya did give an amazing performance in No Way Home. And Mm -hmm. it's a reminder that like, hey, like, you know, and also, I mean, honestly, I was thrilled to see uh, Midnight Mass get so many nominations. You guys know I was a massive fan of Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass, and I was uh, glad to see something like that get so many nominations and and hopefully win, um, because my thought process behind that is maybe there's going to be 10 people who see Midnight Mass in the list of nominations and go, you know what? I've been I've been meaning to watch that. I've been meaning to sit down, you know, like. At this point, it's all it's all cherries on top for for No Way Home. There's there's not really much we can do that's really going to help that movie anymore that it's already been helped. But something like Midnight Mass could always use uh, an extra few people and uh, and spreading the word out there. So that that, those are the those are the nominations that I am excited about. Kev, did anything hit you uh, when you looked over the Super Awards? I mean, part of me just wishes that we didn't have to have a separate awards to to award these uh, these movies. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, it's cool that we have it because it is a great recognition of of, of incredible art that was made. Um, I mean, Margot Robbie's performance in Suicide Squad is incredible. I don't necessarily love that film, but her performance is amazing. And that's a very hard performance. The Harley Quinn's a very hard character to play physically, emotionally. Um, and again, this goes back to what Sean was alluding to. I just feel like it's ridiculous that we don't look at these genres of comedy and horror and action like we do drama. Um, It is the same thing. It's acting, it's production, it's filmmaking, it's editing. It's, you know, like just because it's like might be R rated or have like fart jokes or whatever it would be like, you know, at the same time. But at at the end of the day, these are, these are, these are still movies. These are still uh, pieces of art. So I, I love that that the super awards could be hopefully a bridge to later on where we don't have to have it separate. Like right, right. it should just be one thing. We should be able to look at all genres equally. Um, but for now it's a great uh, thing to have because it's a great middle ground um, because I don't think that we publicly, it's the same thing I always been saying for years about like performance capture, for example, when is the Academy going to realize that like Andy Serkis's performance in planet of the apes is the same thing as Benedict Cumberbatch in Power of the Dog. From a, mm. from a performance perspective, from an emotional perspective, from doing the performance, I'm not saying that their characters are all the same, but what Andy Serkis is doing on that set in a performance capture suit is the exact same thing that Cumberbatch is doing in Power of the Dog. They're both acting. <laughs> now, and that's really what it comes down to, but because the Academy doesn't see the physical person, like Robin Williams in Aladdin or with the voice work, they can't comprehend that it's a performance just as another performance would be. Um, so to me, you know, Andy Circus should have won years ago, but we haven't gotten to that point yet. So the Super Awards give us the ability to at least recognize these movies um, at, for what they are, because they should not be separated, should just be one award show. But Let me give you me. a couple that I know you'll be really happy with. Uh, Jody Comer got nominated for The Last Duel yes. and, for free, and for Free Guy. And for Free Guy, which is amazing. Yeah. And for Free Guy. Uh, Bob Odenkirk got nominated for Nobody. And I think Bob Odenkirk gave a terrific performance. (laughs) The the scene on the bus. Do you have any idea how hard that was to do? 
Like that is an incredible performance. Yes. Uh, but because it's nobody, because it's R-rated and it's a John Wick style action movie, we can't take it seriously. So Let me give it's you another delegated one. to other awards shows. Uh, Anya Taylor Joy and Thomas and McKenzie got nominated for last night in Soho. Cool. That now, fantastic. Did we send these out to like the the talents publicist? Like, have we heard from them at all? I mean, I'd love to get their reaction to. So yesterday was a big blast on social, like uh, Mm -hmm. our social media team made a lot of graphics and promoted them. But we were still, you know, complete transparency, you know, behind the eight ball in terms of, you know, promoting it as well as we should. Because, Mm -hmm. yes, we were making all these graphics right up to the last minute, announcing who the nominees were going to be. Uh, We probably should have gotten in the ears of a lot more publicists a lot earlier to let them know that, like, hey, there's a good chance that Karen Gillan is going to go because James uh, Gunn and Karen Gillan both uh, tweeted stuff about like Suicide Squad being um, recognized. So did Kate Siegel from um, uh, from Midnight Mass. Exactly. So a lot of people who we caught their eye, you know, and and they were like, oh, this is really great. And a lot of them used the branding, you know, Critics Choice Super Awards, which is terrific. And I hope we get to the place where. You know, these become regular and and uh, and they continue to to promote and, and the stars actually legitimately want to to get one. But um, but we're still early. It's still the second year. And I think we're still sure. uh, convincing the people of, of what it is. But for these reasons, you know, for those nominations that I just read out, I think that we can continue to, to recognize fantastic performances. In, That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So we'll, Very we'll, cool. we'll keep going. All right. So before we move where, where on, can, before before we, I was going to ask really quickly, where can people see like the, the winners and all that? That's jazz? a terrific deal. Uh, so on the Critics Choice website, CriticsChoice.com, we have a super awards tab and the nominations, all the nominees for film and television are li- listed there. CriticsChoice.com. They also got picked up by uh, all four of the trades, Variety, Hollywood Reporter. Oh, beautiful. Uh, the Wrap and Deadline. So if you search super awards and nominations, you guys will see what's there for Movies and television, and then uh, the awards themselves are going to be handed out on March 17th, probably in a, to speak to what we've been talking about here, uh, a pre-produced half-hour show that we're going to be putting up on YouTube and all of our socials. So it'll have thank you speeches from the people who win and a lot of fancy graphics, and we'll hopefully pay a good bit of honor to the people who who ended up winning those awards. So Was I uh, nominated for anything? Yes, you were. For yes. sexiest man alive. Congratulations. <laughs> who's, who's my competition? <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> Shit. You're going to win. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going to lose. All right, I want to introduce a, um, a new segment that we're going to have on the show, uh, probably monthly. Because <laughs> it feels like it feels like it's going to it's going to change. Uh, we are now going to conduct a live reading of the current cast list for Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, now you got my attention. All right. So, guys, as we of are right ready. now, we're not ready. <laughs> as of February 23rd, here is the current cast list for Christopher Wait, Nolan's Can we timestamp something real fast? So, of course, yes. As we're recording this, they just started filming Oppenheimer, I believe, yesterday. Yes. Um, principal photography has begun. They are shooting 65 mil and 65 mil IMAX, and for the first time ever, um, I believe first time ever 65 millimeter IMAX black and white. That's insane. Um, which is awesome. And they is released the whole a movie going to be in black and white. I sounds like partially. Partially. All right. Well, here's the list of the current actors. Kevin, what if you got an email that said, come to the set of Oppenheimer? Would you die? Cool. Uh, I don't know that I'd be able to make it. <laughs> I, I feel like I'd be. I, I would take I your spot. I wouldn't be able to handle watching Christopher Nolan direct in person. Direct. I mean, yeah, it, it would be I saw footage of Killian Murphy walking on the set the other day 
and like I just saw Hoyt Van Hoytema and Van Hoytema and I saw Nolan yeah. and I'm just like, oh my god, <laughs> All too right. much. Current cast list: uh, Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Robert Downey Jr., Matt Damon, Florence Pugh, Benny Safdie, Dylan Arnold, Rami Malek, Josh Hartnett, Dane DeHaan, Jack Quaid, Matthew Modine, Alden Einrich, and David Krumholtz. 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 The, the snarky elf from the Santa Claus. And finally. <laughs> Of course, his lucky charm, Kenneth Branagh, has been added oh. to Oppenheimer. So we will be back next month with uh, some new names added to the <laughs> Oppenheimer cast list. It's not, it's not going to be a monthly segment, but it was fun this week. It was I think they're going, to keep, they're going to keep adding uh, names even after the movie has been released. Yeah. Well, who, who was it that tweeted a thing that's like, congratulations, you have been added to the cast of Oppenheimer. Right. <laughs> uh, all right. This week in movies. There's a movie going to Hulu called No Exit. Uh, and while we haven't seen it, I actually just received the book in a um, press kit. So I think I'm going to dive into that soon because it sounds like an interesting concept. Uh, Studio 666. I'll let you guys go because you guys like this more than I did. Uh, I understand that the concept behind Studio 666 is uh, it's probably so bad that it's good, but it never got to that point for me. It just stayed in the this is so bad kind of thing. I never, really thought, I never thought it was bad, though. I never really thought it was a so bad. It's good. Like, I, I enjoyed seeing all the guys together. It, it seemed like they had a lot of fun making this very kind of goofy, insanely brutal horror film. And that well, tell them what me, it is. It's the Foo Fighters. Yes, uh, it's the Foo Fighters. A, a movie. Yeah. And they're looking for uh, inspiration for their next album. And so they kind of move into this house and they're kind of hoping the the sound of the house sort of translates into into the album itself. And uh, needless to say, there's some some dark and demonic things in the house that end up habit inhabiting Dave Grohl. And, and I, I just thought it was a lot of fun. And, and I feel like if especially if you're a horror fan, I feel like it's made by horror fans. I feel like it's made for fans of Foo Fighters. It's made like they all clearly had a blast making it. And I feel like that translates into the into the screen. Therefore, I feel like I was kind of part of like in, in on the joke in a weird mm. way like i never felt like they were taking themselves too seriously so i didn't feel like i had to take the film too seriously it, it, to me it's not a so so bad it's good kind of film i just enjoyed it. look i'm not saying it's a classic or anything i'm just saying that i enjoyed it i had, I had a good time uh, based on sort of the, the vibe that i was getting from them kevin what Dave, I, like did you feel like it was yeah. supposed to be a like so bad I, it's good kind of thing i had so much fun with it i mean personally i feel like this movie was like made for me because not only does it have like a a, a, a heavy metal aspect to it so like for people who don't know, basically, the, the as Jake was mentioning, they move into this house that has a horror um, history. Um, something brutal happened in the house in the 90s to another band that was there uh, that was like a metal band. Um, and that metal band is actually Foo Fighters doing that music, which is really cool. I think they even released one of the tracks. The band is called like Dream Widow or something, I believe. Uh, Jake, I don't remember the name yeah. of the band specifically, but. Uh, that on top of John Carpenter being involved in it, working uh, in the film and just like it was just like I love Tenacious D, The Pick of Destiny. It's one of my favorite comedies. And I just, you know, I thought Dave Grohl was hilarious as Satan in that film. Um, so to me, this kind of like plays within that same sandbox as Tenacious D. It's um, I love metal. I love rock. I love horror movies. Um, they do go extremely, extremely violent on this. I mean, this is definitely a very hard R-rated film. Um, but I just loved like watching them in the in the uh, in the living room, just crunching out metal riffs and like. There's just some funny parts where like Dave's like yelling it like 
Taylor to do. I mean, I'm a Foo Fighters fan, so I know their names like in, in, in that sense. Like I, I'm a fan of the group. So I liked watching them in this setting and just kind of like spending time with them. Um, it is it's have we seen it before? Sure. We've seen I mean, this is taking pulling from classic horror elements. I believe Carpenter wrote the theme for the movie. Yeah. I could be wrong on that. Contributed um, to it at least. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, to me, this is just a fun. If you're a big rock and roll fan or a metal fan uh, or a horror fan, I thought Whitney Cummings was funny in it. Um, you know, it worked to me. It worked. I love spending time with the guys. I thought Grohl was great. Um, well, Dave know. Grohl is crazy charismatic. Like yeah. he yes. is, he has screen presence for days and he always has through their videos like Foo Fighters have always had interesting videos and I always believed if he wanted to transition into some form of acting that he's just gifted for it um and, also, I, and he's always compelling to watch so I was listening to how I listen to Howard Stern every day and like they had um Dave and Taylor on I think it was last week it was a week after we had spoken to them for the press junket and Howard brought up an interesting point about how fascinating it is that 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 uh Dave Grohl got a second shot in terms of like, you need, and what I mean by that is you don't normally see that. Like you see, you see somebody come out with the gate with a very successful band. Obviously Nirvana yeah. was massive, but then to create your own band. I mean, you guys know the first Foo Fighters album, he recorded all the instruments himself. All I mean, it's, it's yeah. insane. Um, and Foo Fighters are now, I mean, they sell out everywhere. Like these guys, I mean, obviously everyone knows they're a big band, but for Foo Fighters to, to be as successful as they are in the wake of Nirvana, is incredible to me. And, well, I, and I think it just shows you how talented Grohl is. And obviously you bring over Pat Smear. I mean, like it, it's a, it, it, to me, it was basically, you know, letting Kurt's legacy live on through the next band and like, and like, and what Nirvana had done for grunge and rock Foo Fighters was able to build off of that and become their own sound. And then like, you know, if you see Foo Fighters live, the cool part about it is, and this is just cool, is to watch Dave go back onto the drums mm. and then Taylor come out front and do he'll do his Queen track, um, Somebody to Love, a cover. Um, but even in this movie, it's cool to see Dave on drums, like mm. just to see him pop on a drum set and do. I mean, like I'm telling you, when I was a kid, I was in this band. <laughs> I was in a band called Descent of Man. And I remember we played. I didn't know yeah, oh, I mean, I need, I've been in bands hear um, this. my whole life. Um, college, I was in the ex- well, uh, I have pictures. In college, I was in a band called The Ex-Presidents. That was after Point Break. This was Descent of Man. And my buddy had a drum set. And the first song I ever learned how to play on drums was Smells Like Teen Spirit. Just that beginning mm. part. Dun, 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 I mean, like that was like that was such an iconic. That video was incredible. Um, I know I'm going off on a tangent here, but like. To watch that movie was cool because it kind of brought me back to understanding Dave's arc in in the music industry. And like Stern was uh, talking about how the Foo Fighters were inducted into the Hall of Fame by Paul McCartney. Wow. McCartney kind of had a second win, too, yeah. if you think yeah, about it. Wing, right. Well, you, wings and his solo wings. Career. Right. Yeah. And like and so like what's and so basically, I think in the speech for Hall of Fame, McCartney was basically saying like the Foo Fighters are similar to Dave's arc is similar to what I did with the Beatles. I was in the Beatles. He was in Nirvana to the biggest bands of all time. And we were, and they were able to continue on outside of that, that element. I mean, I'm well, obsessed and- right now with this, this Paul McCartney wings song called let me roll it from licorice pizza. And I'm just like, I, it is amazing that Grohl got that second chance with Foo Fighters. So it's awesome. imagine this in an alternate universe where the Foo Fighters, uh, uh, the, where Nirvana somehow stays together. Right. Mm-hmm. And is, and is, and Dave Grohl just remains the drummer of Nirvana, you know, still big. 
Still big deal. Of course. Sure, of course. But yeah. like never branches out, never becomes the songwriter that he was meant to be. Or, yeah. you know, there's no none of that alternate music. Like I, I find that kind of stuff fascinating. Or oh, who's yeah. to say that the drummer of, you know, the who? Well, not not the who. I guess that would be he would be a genius. Um, but like some other band who never get a chance to shine, you know. Sean brings up a really interesting point. I was I, I, was, I had a buddy of mine over recently and we're I'm I'm I'm. I'm I'm a, I'm weird. I'm a huge hip hop fan and I'm also a huge metal fan. So those are my two favorite genres of music. And we were having this exact discussion, Sean, about Biggie, um, because, you know, Biggie puts out two classics, Ready to Die and Life After Death. And then you just start to imagine what else would have come out of that guy. Sure. Like, where yeah. would we if Biggie was alive today? What how would rap music be different? I mean, that I mean, I, I consider him the greatest rapper of all time. That's a whole nother discussion we can get into. But in terms of your question about Nirvana, like what is Nirvana's music in 2022 if Kurt Cobain is alive? Sure. And, you know, I, it is a fascinating thing to think about. But then you have no Foo Fighters. Yeah. It's so yeah. weird. It is it's weird to think to about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm um, with you. I, I think about that a lot. From the music of Nirvana to uh, the musical Cyrano. Uh, we had Joe Wright on the show earlier and his film is now reaching theaters. Cyrano is uh, another tale of Cyrano de Bergerac, of the um, quote-unquote non-visually appealing lead character <laughs> who has to uh, write really wonderful things so that a very attractive lead character uh, can win over another very attractive lead character. And my favorite version of this story is Roxanne with yeah. Steve Martin and Daryl Hannah. Just a completely charming, totally winning romantic comedy. Um, Cyrano, I, I didn't love it. And one of the things that struck me about it, the, my biggest takeaway from it was that um, I don't think Peter Dinklage can sing. And I've had a conversation with people after the fact that that was the point that his character wasn't necessarily supposed to be a singer. And I found it really interesting because I didn't know going into this movie that this was a stage version that these actors have done before, that they've been mm -hmm. in the show. And that's part of why Joe Wright sort of picked them up and and put them into into the movie for it. But I. uh yeah, I just I could not get past the fact that as as great of an actor as Peter Dinklage is, whenever his character started to sing in a musical of which he's the lead, uh, it kind of took me out of it. So did you guys like it more than I did? I I mean, it's been a while since we've seen it, as you said. Um, mm. We saw it a while back. Um, I remember watching it. It was the same day that I saw. I was uh, it was another big film. I can't remember. I, I remember. I remember the theater I was in, though. But I remember like I had two films that day. And I had I was going to go Cyrano and I, and I sat down and watched it. I knew nothing about it. I did not watch the trailer. One of my favorite things nowadays is like to go into a film without watching a trailer. I did it recently with this movie Fresh um, just to kind of see like because <laughs> that's one to do for. What's funny is when you don't watch a trailer, like like when you watch a trailer, if you think about it, your brain then becomes um, designed to wait for the quote unquote needle drop mm -hmm. of the plot. Yeah. Right. So like, like you're like, no matter what's happening, like in the first 30 minutes of a film, like a great example of this would be from dust till dawn. Um, I don't remember how they marketed that film, but like, if you watch that film without seeing the trailer and you just saw the first hour and you're like, okay, this is a, a film about two guys who were on the run. Two I love murderers, watching that movie with people who have no idea what it's about. Right. And then all of a sudden it shifts to a vampire film. If you didn't watch the trailer, that needle drop, moment i don't know if needles drop is the right term for it but like that moment that change is so effective so like when i watched fresh i didn't know anything about the plot 
And so when that needle drop happened, I'm like, oh, my God, think, this is crazy. I think the metaphor you're looking for is a record scratch moment. Record scratch. It's more there you kind go. of like it. Yeah. Shifting ah, the genre, yeah. shifting it. Um, so going back to Cyrano, I sat down, knew nothing about it. I knew I knew that there was a stage element to it. Um, so to me, I was I didn't understand. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And I, I was blown away by the production value of it. But I just didn't connect to the story. And I thought Dinklage was good. He was actually I would argue that he was great in the film. Um, Haley Bennett is great as well. I mean, Joe Wright is no stranger to great production design. I mean, there are some shots in this film that are wicked. There's a wicked fight sequence on a, up a staircase with Dinklage, which I thought was really cool. Um, but outside of that, like as I'm sitting here talking to you guys months later after watching it, I don't remember much about it in terms of like anything that stayed with me, except for that staircase fight. Um, everything outside of that, the movie just didn't resonate on an emotional level to me. And I get what they were going for. And I think Haley Bennett's a really, really, really talented actor. Um, I just didn't. I just I just remember leaving the theater going. That was a solid production from Joe Wright that I probably mm -hmm. would not paid to see in theaters um, mm -hmm. only because not that it didn't look good. I just didn't find myself engrossed in the story as much as I wanted to. You look at Atonement or Pride and Prejudice or even Anna Karenina, those films I felt oh, grabbed me favorites. more. Yeah, yeah they grab those, those grabbed me more um, as an audience member. Cyrano, I love Dinklage. I just didn't find it to be resonating. And, and this is actually a really interesting way to review a film because we're talking on February 23rd for a movie that we saw in October. Now, granted, if I watched it again today, would, would my opinion shift? Possibly my my mood could be different. My life, I, I could have lived more life and learned more things. And that movie could hit me a lot differently. You know what I mean? Um, so it is it is important to take this review uh, with that perspective. But it's also interesting to think about the longevity of it. What did that film leave me? Not much. Yeah. Um, well, so Jake saw it more recently. So I want to yeah. get his take on it. Yeah, no, I, no I, I, I saw it. A, I saw it a second time. Uh, well done. Uh, yeah. I saw it a second time. I actually I like the movie a lot more than you guys, I think. Um Aside from all, all the reasons uh, that you guys said, I actually really enjoyed uh, the music. I thought a lot of the musical performances were fantastic. Um, in fact, there's a, a sequence where they sing a song about heaven uh, while they're marching off into war. And that that sequence alone was probably one of my favorite movie scenes that, that I saw last year. I thought that was hmm. incredible. Um, I, I've always liked that story. I've always thought that was a really interesting um, story that, that we have seen a thousand times before. And you're right. I think yeah. Roxanne's probably the best version of it. Um, but everything about this, I really liked. I thought it took me a second to kind of I don't know. It probably took me a solid 15 minutes of watching it to kind of go, OK, this is mm -hmm. what kind of movie this is going to be. Yeah. Because for the first 15 minutes, I'm going, wait, how, what, what, what is it? What kind of vibe is this movie giving me? Like how, but then once I kind of like sort of like shook myself into it and went, okay, like, all right, well, I get it. I'm in. I'll like, even say this about Joe Wright. Like, you know, Pan was a misfire as far as most people consider it to be. But I think he loved the story. I think he really wanted to tell it. When I was yeah. watching this, I didn't get the impression that if Joe Wright has the the quote unquote 10 films, you know, that Tarantino has. Yeah. Like, I didn't get the impression that he really loved this story or really wanted to tell it. So I, I don't know. That was that's what I you. It's you also just, been a very strange release. Like, like you have to understand, like from a, from a from our perspective in the business, we covered this film in October and then it got pushed back over and over again, which and again, that has nothing to do with the quality of the film. 
But it does it does give you pause to think about, like, you know, does the studio really have a lot of confidence in this movie? Um, and I'm not saying that when a movie's I, delayed. I, mean, I, th- I think that they just misfired and overestimated their uh, their Oscar potential. I really thought that mm-hmm. they were going to be on the receiving end of a lot of Oscar love and thought that this particular release date would most benefit from them getting nominations for best actor and best picture and best this and best that. Mm. And then they realized, Oh shit, we don't get those nominations. If people haven't actually seen the film, I think they, uh, they 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 were Joe wrong. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they were. Game. Game. The Academy said, Sira, no to you. Yeah. <laughs> Stop. No, Jake, it's not any better. <laughs> this week's this week's blend game uh, is honoring the great John Singleton, uh, the late great John Singleton, who passed away recently at the oh, age of 51. And we talk about yeah. Kevin, we talk about artists who go too soon and, and probably still have some uh, some great work. Left in them, John Singleton left us too early. Um, I'm going to go first because I'm going to pick something that I don't think you guys picked. Uh, and I'm going with Poetic Justice. Poetic oh, Justice. Poetic Justice. Yeah. But there, there are a, a couple of really strong reasons why I, I, I love this movie. I really, really appreciate it. Um, following up Boys in the Hood is really hard, right? Like there yeah. was so much attention on John Singleton and what was his next story going to be. And I thought Poetic Justice was a terrific script i love the fact that he directs his own scripts um for the most part he i think he later on in life he probably took on other people's screenplays but early on he wrote the stuff that he was directing um and the two leads and it's funny we were talking about um dave grohl earlier as a artist or a musician with incredible screen presence uh, janet jackson and tupac shakur were unbelievably charismatic uh on the screen the camera just followed them you know yeah. and it wasn't a quote unquote like you know rom-com type thing it was a it was a difficult relationship story set against the backdrop of you know really tough la neighborhoods that that john singleton liked to showcase and uh i thought that the the way that the two of them went through the course of that movie was really really fantastic and i kind of love the fact that it it's a time capsule you know a, a sort of capture the moment of tupac in in that era you know like you can always you'll always be able to go over to the shelf and pull it down and put poetic justice on and he's he's back there with us um but janet jackson i have no idea why janet jackson didn't do more films like she was really great in that movie and i just think had so much screen presence that uh, I thought that was going to be the launch of almost kind of like um with Whitney Houston when Whitney Houston did the bodyguard where you yeah. were like oh if she wanted to be she could be an enormous film star uh, and then never really pursued it. So well, she, had was, a, she had a string of popular hits in the 90s. Yeah, she had Wendy Exhale and, and yeah. The Preacher's Wife. And OK, yeah, that's yeah, she true. had a pretty good yeah. run. Yeah, that's true. Um, so I went with Poetic Justice for that reason, for my John Singleton choices. Uh, Jake, where'd you go? Um, I went and I, I won't speak too long on it because I'm assuming Kevin did as well. I went with Boys in the Hood. Sure. Um, not just because of everything that it did right but it was also a, a really harsh reminder of how wrong so many other films had gotten uh, mm. just the gang culture by that at that time. I mean, so much about this film and we're talking that this is his directorial debut. It was, it was everything about it just felt authentic. It felt like this story was being told by someone who needed to tell this story, someone that had mm. the right to tell the story, someone that knew how to tell the story. And it almost made you look kind of at, at a lot of films, not just before, but since and go, look, if you don't know how to do it this well, just don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there are so many X factors about that. 
and, and kind of like what you said with Poetic Justice, where it's just like that movie's what coming. To, it's 30 years old and you, yeah. you, you you pop it on the DVD or DVD. Jesus Christ. You pop it on on your TV, you know, right now. And it's just as relevant um, for some some of the same and some of the different reasons as, as it was 30 years ago. And th- to me, that's the ultimate test of a film, not just how relevant it can be the day it's released, but how relevant Mm -hmm. it can be 30 years later. Um, It still feels like a snapshot of then, but somehow magically feels like a snapshot of now. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is kind of what blows my mind about it. And almost any film that that comes up that's based there or about anything about yes. there, yeah, can't help but reference, yeah. you know what yeah. John Singleton captured. It's it's the, it's the it's the same way that you can't make a movie about a shark without someone going, well, you know, like in Jaws, you know, sure, X, sure, Y, sure. and Z. It, you can't make a movie about that world, that culture, that 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 period, that period of of, of America without some someone going, well, like. Like it was done perfectly with Boys in the Hood. Sure. Kev, so. I know you're a huge fan. Oh, yeah. I mean, I just I, it, it just amazes me that he was what 24 when, oh he, when he made that film or, 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 or when he was nominated. I mean, that movie got Best Director nomination and I believe original screenplay. And wow. for your directorial debut right out the gate at, you know, 1991, you're, you know, you're in your 20s. I mean, like Jake made a great point about the voice. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, Boys in the Hood is a director's film. It comes from a, you feel Singleton speaking to you, not like that. It takes you out of the film, but you know, this is coming from a very, very real and true place. I mean, for somebody to come out the gate and do boys in the hood, poetic justice, and then higher learning. Yeah. I mean that, that, that three punch is so awesome. Um, and like, later on in his career, he did a great movie that I liked called baby boy, which I almost chose because baby boy was a movie that I, Loved, a lot of people love Baby Boy. Great movie. And I'm, but the only reason why that movie was in my mind was because that was like, I, I believe if I'm, if I'm accurate on it in terms of my, my timing, I think I saw Baby Boy first. Who was then in I went it? Back, was Tyrese? Uh, Tyrese okay. and uh, also um, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s Taraji brother. P. Henson. Okay. Okay. Isn't Cuba Gooding Jr.'s brother from Smart Guy? Taraji P. Henson. I mean, That's I'm not Cuba remember. Gooding Jr.'s brother. <laughs> no, I know. I'm, I, I'm trying to remember the cast in my head, but it was definitely yeah. Tyrese and Taraji P. Henson. I don't know about Cuba. Good it was one of Tyrese's brothers. earliest films, wasn't it? One of the, wasn't one yeah. of the first ones that he was in. Gotcha. Yeah. And I just remember like seeing it at AMC Hampton 24. And then like, not that I didn't Omar know. Single, not that I didn't know who Singleton was, but I went back. Oh my God, it looks just like him. Cuba Good and Sorry, I went God. back and, and watched like a lot of Singleton's earlier work. So I was just really kind of, um, Boys in the Hood was just like it, there was just something like there's something that it captured that I'm so happy that film captured it and it exists forever now. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's a moment. It's it it's it, it was a movie that needed to be made. It is a movie that pe- that needed to be seen. Um, you know, you're talking about some of the cast is incredible. Obviously, you know, you know from you know, I I, I always found just the idea of the importance of that film and just kind of the, the vibe of it, the way it was, the way it was executed and shot and, you know, and scored and, and the music. It was, it was, it's incredible. I love that movie. I want to bring ice cube from boys in the hood uh, to the future and show him. Are we there yet? You think he'd are be we not, like, not, are we there yet too? <laughs> what do you think he would be like? What happened to me? Poor ice cube. I mean, he went that um, family route. It's easy to Kev, go. Kev, do you want to know my pick? Yeah. 
What? You never make a pick. Too fast, too furious, baby. I knew it. I, I was too fast, too furious. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you, I, I joke, but I also that would probably be my pick. List, long time listeners know that even though I invented this game, I don't like playing this game. Never. Um, and when I and when I do, I usually just look for I look for nostalgia things that affected me as a kid. It's not necessarily um, their best, which is not what we're doing or whatever. And for me, Too Fast and Furious, pivotal, pivotal movie. Right. Baby Boy was picks. that was that movie for me weirdly with him. But even though I don't mm. think it's his best, I think Boys in the Hood's his best. But yeah, it's interesting. Uh, John Palmer, Michael Breen, Harry Lichtman, and many many others went with Boys in the Hood. Uh, Zen Jake picked Four Brothers. Uh, oh, four and three. A, it's a great movie. That's four a Brothers solid, is really good. Solid solid like four Brothers. film. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. He had a great. He had, did he only make? He only made nine movies. I was reading this. Awesome. Uh, well, he did yeah, a lot yeah. of TV projects as well. Yeah. Yes. Like yeah. like he was he was involved with. I think he was like actively involved with Snowfall before he passed away. Mm-hmm. 403 Fish uh, went with Poetic Justice. And then Rachel Ho, a longtime listener, Rachel Ho went with Shaft, his his first version of Shaft, which uh, the first one was good. I believe some people were saying that the sequel, the, the more recent one that they did was not so good. So, no, uh, that's a shame. Okay, Single for next week. Good. Yeah, it was good, actually. Uh, for next week, you can reach out on Twitter using hashtag Ava DuVernay Blend. We're going to be mm. doing the films of Ava DuVernay. So let us know your pick via email at realblend at simpleblend.com or also using that hashtag. Gabe has a point that he would like to make. You say the films, I think with her limited filmography and given how important her documentary work and her television work is. Sure. Yeah. Definitely open it up beyond films for the folks at home. And that makes sense. And um, producing too. She produces a lot of really interesting things. She produces if you'd like, if something she produces. Yeah. But I think her, her work as a director, all of it is. Just some incredible stuff. So can we, also, to pick a documentary? can we also say that next week we have we can just say it. We have a big you can guest. say it. We have Matt Reeves joining us, uh, director of the Batman. Um, we're all going to review the Batman. We've all seen the Batman. Well, um, <laughs> oh. Gabe hasn't seen it. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, at this moment, uh, the I think the embargo lifts on the 28th of February. So it'll be Correct. perfect timing for us to do um to do the uh, to do the to the show and Reeves will join us and he was a great guest and we if you're into like lenses and camera work and like nerdy stuff we get Kev they changed the title of that movie you didn't know no now it's called it's just called Vengeance oh awesome awesome yeah yeah Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a muted Kev Jake uh, Jake is muted Jake is Jake's muted, muted. Sorry. Sorry, my dog was barking. But you joke, but whenever they were doing a lot of the second unit stuff here in Chicago, like the code name that they it were was. shooting under was Vengeance. And I was like, was guys, really? like if you're trying to hide that from people, that's because because at that point, there had already been the trailer where he <laughs> yeah. was like, I'm Vengeance. And I was like, yeah. you guys are doing a really bad job it's like of hiding this production. Their code that's, name was Batmobile. <laughs> <laughs> that scene in the first teaser that was in, that was one of my that scene is insane. Oh, and if you want to see Robert Pattinson talking about that scene, <laughs> oh yeah, uh, it's in Kevin's interviews that are available on the on the YouTube. So on, did you on hear the what YouTube. he said on the YouTube? Like, that was nuts. What he it said was terrific. Anyway, yes. Yeah. All right, Matt right. Reeves. Next week, uh, we're going to be doing a, a mailbag for our next premium episode. And again, you can access all of those episodes uh, at cinemablend.com backslash realblendpremium. Uh, you can follow us online. At Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, at Sean underscore O'Connell. I keep hitting this and it goes to the top of the notes, Gabe. It's annoying. Such uh, a relatable Gabe issue. Kovach, uh, and at Real Blend. We'll be back next week uh, with Matt Reeves, as mentioned. And so until then, Oppenheimer. Oh, Oppenheimer's a good one. Oh, I'm down for Oppenheimer.
Is Ooh Hi. Oppenheimer the name of the musical, Jake? Ooh Oppenheimer. Yes. Ooh. Ooh Oppenheimer. <laughs> Oppenheimer. <laughs> At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a 25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR.